Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 77 of the Tartan Talks podcast, our monthly conversation with an American Society of Golf Course Architects member. And this is just a terrific tactical conversation about being a golf course architect and what it takes to get projects done. Joining us is Gary Brawley of Gary Brawley Golf Design. Gary is based in Peoria, Arizona, which is in the Phoenix metropolitan area. He does a lot of work in the Southwest, all types of projects, whether they're via master plan or huge ones that have done all at once. He's extremely knowledgeable on every topic, and we get into a lot of things in this podcast, and we also get into some water conversation. But before we get going with Gary, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're on board, and we're glad that Gary was able to take so much time to join us. Well, Gary, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to chat about your work in golf course architecture. And the first thing I have to ask you here is I just found out yesterday that you have four children. How do you balance raising four children with the demands of a job like yours? Oh, man. It's, uh, well, first, the credit's got to go to my wife, right? She probably raises them more than I do. But, uh, you know what, Guy, I know it comes up a lot in our profession, and it's just, when I'm home, I try to be around. I actually have a home office. I've been working in the home office for probably the better part of 20 years now. So, you know, I, I knew what it was like to work from home pre-COVID. So, but it's just, it's just managing the time. And now my boys are old enough. They can, they can go with me in the summer and uh, do some work. They're, they're good at doing some layout and staking and. Um, so they can help do that type of stuff. One of them's get, got his, uh, or is getting his drone license so he can fly the drone and get some other shots and he enjoys photography so he's always out there uh, taking pictures and so it's uh, trying to just engage him then and you know when we can we get out and play a little golf together and so that's always good you're based in uh, peoria arizona which is in the phoenix area we're recording this podcast in november uh, how much excitement and buzz is there around people going out and playing the game and you're part of the country right now it's hard to find tea times out here everyone's coming out of overseed uh, for the most part down here in arizona we're getting ready to host the super bowl and the waste management open on the same weekend so the buzz is already starting about that weekend in february of what it's going to be like and seeing some of the rates for golf around the valley for that week and telling all my friends to stay home don't come out here if you want to play golf so um it's uh you know it's still good i you know talking to a lot of the courses I'm working with, you know, rounds were still, maybe they didn't go up as much, but they were definitely still high um, over past years, and, and that's been good for the business, and, um, you know, we just got to make sure we, we're keeping these people out there on the golf course. You bring up a good point about tee times and how tough they can be to get in your part of the country during the winter. My wife and I were there around the holidays last year. Everything was packed. When's the best time for somebody listening to this to go to Arizona and play golf in your mind? It's hot in the summer, but man, that's the best time because you can play a lot quicker rounds and not as many golfers out there. Um, you know, that's when that I that's when I go play my golf. I pretty much put the clubs away for um, now until after, you know, the spring training because, you know, we got Phoenix Open, um, Super Bowl, then we'll move right into spring training. So, you know, February, March, April, this crazy month out here. So um, fall's the best time. You know, right before the guys close for overseas, I think is when the golf courses are the option is best. It's still a little warm, 
but it's not uh, it's not as bad as some of the June and July day, days that we get. So summer's good if you want because you can play 36 holes. You got to stay hydrated, um, and you know that's the important thing. But you can get 36 holes in pretty quickly. You're very uh, close to the golf and water situation. Uh, you help out the golf industry in Arizona oversee that. How prominent is overseeding? In your part of Arizona now, is it still a common practice, or have people gone away from it because of the cost? You know, it's it's a there's a balance. I think you're seeing a little bit of shift, but mm-hmm. um, away from that, and then guys are weighing that more um, regarding their water. Obviously, water in Arizona or in anywhere in the Southwest, anywhere where water's coming out of Colorado, the Colorado River, all the basin states, Las Vegas. Um, Southern California, all, even all the way up into Reno, uh, water is huge right now, and those discussions are every day. And yeah, so, guys are are seeing, you know, concerning not overseeding. There's some multi-course facilities that now are starting to, to maybe not overseed one of their courses, and it helps them because, like I just said, the best time to play golf in Arizona is in October. Well, that's when we're typically closed because. Um, we're getting ready to overseed, and then you come out of overseed, and it's not uh, really tight and good yet. And uh, so, the more that we can kind of maybe get away from that, we are. And, you know, we're starting to see some better uh, Bermuda grasses that can give you maybe a longer playing condition. Uh, so we've got some courses that are are converting to tip tough, which is showing that it can hold its color longer, and maybe they can. Uh, just use, you know, paints or dyes and, and not have to overseed and, and give the golfers good playing conditions. You know, different recovery becomes a challenge when you're putting, you know, 200 plus rounds a day through there and there's really no growth. So that's the challenge on part threes and, and dealing with, you know, distribution of play on part threes and you have enough tee space to, to handle the traffic and not overseed. So. Yeah, the guys, they're all trying. They're all, they're all pushing the envelope to see what we can do. Uh, you know, cause water, without water, we're nothing, right? So, uh, you know, and we need to be good stewards and, and we are good stewards and we, but public perception is that we're not. Public perception is we just waste water, right? What type of, uh, golf design, construction, renovation opportunities are you seeing in your part of the Southwest and how tough has it been to execute the work with so much play going on in your part of the country? Typically, our construction season's in the summer. I mean, we have to get the Bermuda. That's when the Bermuda grass is growing. So we've got to get done. If we're springing by June, July would be ideal uh, so that you can get good 60, 90 days of growth in on, on the sprigs. If you're sodding, you can you know proceed and go much later. Uh, so it's a, it's a challenge to you know even to get contractors. So we're we're bidding jobs right now a year to year and a half in advance uh, just to secure a contractor to do large scale projects, uh, so that they, the owner can do that. And we just have to figure out ways to manage the change in material costs. And I think we're getting through some of that. And you know I just came back from the ASGC annual meeting. And that seemed to be a pretty prevalent discussion amongst my colleagues is, you know, how far out in advance we're having to get projects going and, and lined up for, for future work, just for contractor availability. And, but it's also just supply and demand of materials. And 
getting materials available, and um, we need every part to, to get going. So, but so we're we're scheduling, and it all depends on on the scope of when you need to start. The, the challenge out here, guys, March, April, even May are really good months, you know. But if we're doing major renovations and we need to to get greens regrass, if we're rebuilding greens or something, well, you know, that window is pretty tight to get in there, and you know the so the balance of when can we start, how can we keep nine holes open for how much longer to keep revenue coming in and before we have to close all 18. So, you know, those are all, all things we're working through with clubs and trying to make all those decisions and getting that balance in there to, to get it done. Gary, let's say a owner or membership is thinking about doing a project in 2023 or 2024. A, is it too late for 2023? And B, what are you trying to learn on that initial call when they talk about doing uh, projects either next year or two or three years down the road? From what I hear, it's really too late to do, the, especially the bigger projects for 2023. I've got two pretty big ones, or actually three big ones, you know, um, and they're already under contract, and we're, uh, we've got materials on the ground. Uh, the irrigation materials are already on the ground in containers on one of them. We did nine holes this last summer, so the contractor was able to just keep their containers there, and we already took shipment of the irrigation materials, and we're, we've stored them on site in, in the locked-up containers. So they were, we're not even starting that till till the end of March. Um, so in you know, 2023, I think it was tougher for the big part. I think we can still get away with some of those smaller in the southwest, some of those smaller projects. Where we can sod. Like if we sod, we can push that window into August, September. Um, so, you know, the, the demand to get golf courses done this spring, well, those guys are, are really, you know, hitting that mark by, you know, June, July. So they can roll in and do some smaller, you know, six, eight, ten week projects later in the season, uh, trying to get that done so that we can have the sod down before we overseed and, uh, go with that. So, but I mean, I think right now, talking to the to the guys out there, you know, we're really now already looking at 2024 uh, for that stuff. And I have one another project um, in Nevada that we're working on uh, coming out the bid after the first of the year for uh, 2024. Gary, how did you uh, land in Arizona, and how did your career reach the point of establishing your own firm, Gary Brawley Golf Design, in 2000? 14, just take our listeners through your career journey. Yeah, I, I started, I was a kid and actually wrote, uh, wrote a letter to the, I was, grew up in Northern California, wrote a letter to the, uh, Bobby Jones, Ted Jones Jr. office and Don Knotts sent me a, a letter back in the, the, uh, early 80s and the late 80s and said, you know, most of the guys in our office have degrees in landscape architecture and, you know, we, we encourage people to go do that. And the cool thing is Don and I have become really close friends. And actually, we're looking at doing a project uh, potentially together um, here in the next year or so. Uh, but I, so I went and got a degree in landscape architecture at uh, Colorado State. And they had a good turf program there. So I was able to get some, uh, sneak into a couple of the turf classes just to kind of broaden my horizons. I worked uh, for the city of Loveland. Uh, Colorado for three years on the maintenance crew through college. And the assistant there, Dennis Kling, still the superintendent there. Now he's the superintendent there. 
so we've reconnected over the years. My name came up on a, a reference list, and he, he kind of chuckled and gave me a call, and uh, we've, we've been able to reconnect. So that's been pretty cool, someone that, that you know, just kind of taught me the ropes and saw that I was going to be doing something different, but I wanted to understand the, the maintenance side. I, I was like, I need to understand all aspects of the golf course industry from – uh, not just the design side, but how do how do we maintain them? And what what does it mean to you know triplex or walk mower green and where you're talking about turning radiuses and you know all those types of things? So learned all that uh, was great. You got to do they kind of just let me do a lot of different things just to kind of teach me, and I was kind of a sponge at that time to do that stuff. So did that and then uh, uh, got my first opportunity out of school to work for Dave Dale. Another fellow ACCA member and, and Ron Freem, when Ron was still involved in back in Northern California, was there about a year, found out I didn't know how to build golf courses, and then that's what brought me to the Southwest. I came down here and, and worked uh, for Wadsworth Golf Construction for two years, learning the, the ropes of golf construction, and I was in the office. I was you did bidding and estimating and, and helping the general superintendents and the field superintendents procure materials and get everything on board. But being a single guy, and that's when that office was building, you know, 12 to 15 new courses a year in the early 90s. And, or, or, and so we were, you know, I was able to get out a lot to golf courses, and, and the superintendents were great to have me come out for the weekend. He was a guy that would want to come out and work on the weekend just to learn more about construction. And, and then I worked, uh, went to work for Gary Panks. I uh, worked for Mr. Panks for seven years. Uh, then I worked, uh, had the opportunity to uh, work for Trip Davis. And so Trip and I uh, worked something out, and I kept in his office for Trip, and uh, which was fantastic. Uh, you know, we got really exposed to a lot of renovation, a lot of historical renovations, working with Trip, and we were doing some new stuff at the time. Uh, so that was that was fantastic. And then. Uh, about seven years ago, just decided to the, the time was to take a risk and go out on my own and hang my own shingle, and uh, you know everything was good, and we just kind of took off, and you know, it's uh, we're still still going at it, so it's been good. But you know, those guys are they've all in their own ways had some impact in, in my career, you know, especially uh, Dave and, and Mr. Panks and, and Trip of. You know, just different things I learned along the way from those guys, and you know now I can sit there and and you know put all that to work. And you know, Dave grabbed me at the at our meeting up in Newport and just told me how proud he was that I'm still still out there pushing it, and you know just keep going, keep going. So got really involved in the Phoenix market. It's obviously a hotbed for golf, and you know just get to know all the superintendents and kind of made a name for myself in this area, but it, now I've started to branch out. I've got projects in Nevada and New Mexico and, and Texas, and uh, so it's it's been good. So You mentioned some names we've had on the Tartan Talks podcast this year. I mean, Don Knott was episode 74. We had Trip Davis on earlier this year. How important is it when you have your own business to have those type of relationships with other people that are doing the, the same thing? I mean, I guess sometimes you probably do feel like you're the only one doing what you're doing in the world, but how good is it to have conversations with those people and people that are uh, you can relate to? I mean, that's one of the cool things about our industry is we can have those conversations. Boarding my flight to go to, to uh, Newport, um, 
you know, a couple weeks ago in, in Phoenix Airport, there's Don Nod, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. I got a layover in Philly coming up, and he was just able to share the time with Don and, you know, talk about business, talk about life, you know, uh, even, you know, talking with Tripp and his guys about different means of construction. They've, they've done some things with some other things, products that I haven't used, and being able to say, how how is it, you know, uh, so that's, I mean, that's what we're here for. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're all trying to, to make our industry better. And so be able to share those conversations is great. I thought our AHGCA meeting this last year was fantastic. The conversations about greens, greens construction, green speeds versus slope. Uh, those were fantastic conversations. And, you know, I, I felt like I actually came away with something you know, to use and to pass along to my clients from those conversations with uh, my fellow golf course architects. And the guys like Todd Clark out of Kansas City, we talk a lot and just share things. And, you know, it's, that's the one of the cool things I like about our, our group. So, You mentioned you're from Northern California. What types of golf courses did you grow up playing and were you influenced by any of the uh, architecture of those golf courses? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I went, and, you know, that stuff didn't really resonate with me. I, you know, I played a ton of junior golf. I grew up on a small municipal golf course a couple hours north of San Francisco. Um, but I played all my junior golf throughout the Bay Area and Sacramento Valley. So, you know, looking back after I left, you know, there was a lot of McKenzie stuff, you know, with Ansel Hoffman. You know, I played Northwood all the time before it kind of got its um, – you know, name and the lights per se, the, the, the nine hole up there. I played that all the time. Um, you know, Green Hills, you know, we played the state championship at in high school. And, you know, there's some, uh, you know, Willie Bell stuff up there that I got to see. But when I was a kid, I didn't know that stuff. You know, I was just playing golf and trying to beat the guy I was playing against. And, you know, but, but did that stuff impact me? I mean, something resonated at some point in my junior golf career that I, I decided I didn't want to go into to, you know, be a club pro. I, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to, I enjoy tremendously being out in the field and construction. And as I've gotten to study those golden age guys and, you know, read McKenzie's book and, and working on several uh, Bell projects right now, you know, you're, you start to see, oh, you know, I, that's right. You know, that some of those things come, come to, to mind. And, you know, there was a lot of Trent Jones Jr. stuff up in the Bay Area that I played, and that's actually what led me to write the letter to their office to begin with. And so, you know, it's it's just a, you know, the, there's a lot we can learn, right? I think you know, one of the things I try to do is I'm always trying to learn, you know, every day, you know, whether it's reading articles from train magazines. Or, you know, most of the time if I'm working out of my home office, I'm reading something, on, you know, while I'm eating some lunch and just trying to, to gain more understanding and see what we do. And, you know, I love the tours. I mean, we, we got to go tour a course in the Northeast. Uh, you know, we just walked in, and, man, I thought that was pretty cool. Like, we saw some things that were wild. Um, you know, there there was Quamacot, and, you know, just kind of pretty some pretty cool stuff. So, you know, just come back, make some notes, make some sketches, and, and go from there. So, Do you remember what you wrote in that letter to RTJ Jr.'s office? Do you remember – the words in it and your message? I, I just, yeah, I don't remember. I've tried to find it. I, you know, I think my parents have it, but you know, it's just something along the lines of, you know, I, I 
enjoy golf course design. I, I play competitively. You know, I, I want to get into the business. And the cool thing is we had the head pro at the time um, we were growing up, we had done some P projects. Like we, he was like, hey, you guys all, the high school kids, you guys come out and help me rebuild and re-level this tee. I'll take you to Carmel and we'll go see the, the, the little event that they were playing down there at Carmel Valley Ranch. And, you know, that's as your reward. I won't pay you. So got to kind of dabble in some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, it was just something resonated about it. And, and I remember, um, you know, Don mentioning something about, you know, some drafting and artistic classes. And I remember even my senior year in high school taking art and, um, you know, drafting and just learning those types. Even that was still when we were using pencil and mylar. You know, it's, you know, when you had the big old T-square and, and you were using that to draft and, you know, before AutoCAD and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, just learn the, the basics of art and being able to sketch. And I'm, you know, I see some of my colleagues' sketches and I'm not there, but I can convey, you know, some intent quickly to a shaper or something. But uh, it's, uh, you know, just, but it was just encouraging. And, and the cool thing, guy, I, I ended up doing a one of my projects it may have been my senior year, a kind of a thorough analysis, detailed analysis of design aspects of, of a golf course. And I chose Poppy Hills at the time because it's something I had played a bunch. You know, it was a Trent Jones course. And, you know, growing up in North, Northern California and playing a lot of the NCGA junior stuff. And, you know, we got to play out there all the time. And I'm like, you know, again, I wasn't, you know, exposed to a lot of the historical stuff that was in the day and um so i did that and actually you know when i came out of college i i sent my resume to back to to don and, and he actually called me in for an interview i was already working for with dave dale and he called me in for for an interview he goes hey we've got an opening and you know would you be interested and and i went down and did the interview and and uh i don't and i, I obviously didn't end up there but uh you know, it was, but again, it was that I had done something like that. Don's like, yeah, I'm interested in see what you wrote. So it's, uh, so just, you know, what it was, and I think I, what I learned from that, I still get resumes, you know, from young guys. And I respond to every single one of them, you know, just because you never know, right? Just that Don took the time to respond to that, that letter. And that was before email. You know, the, you know, I got a letter back and I was so excited, you know, with the Robert Trent Jones Jr., you know, return address i'm like oh he wrote me back he wrote me back <laughs> you know that was that was pretty cool that you know he would take just the time to write that letter and so i think that was probably i, I think i told him that when we were recently together like you know, that's something i learned like you know respected like you know these kids are i was that kid at one time sending resumes out to everybody and letters out you know i, I you know I, I pretty much make a point to reach back out to all those guys and encourage them and, you know, keep their style. I have them all, you know, if I ever needed to hire someone, I've got all those fluid resumes. So that's awesome. You still have that childhood zest for the industry. That's pretty clear here in your voice. And you mentioned that you try to learn something every day, read something every day, soak something in every day, talk to somebody every day. I was uh, always wondering this as a golf course architect, just how much of the job is listening to people? It's a ton. It's a lot, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to, especially when you have a wide array of, of clientele, mm -hmm. right? It's, and it's balancing 
at a private club, for example, you know, you've got your, your A players that have their own agenda, yet you've got the, the senior golfers that have been members for 30 years that want a certain thing or don't want change, and you've got the ladies, and so you've got to listen to them all and balance them all. And, you know, I was working on an older club um, that we're working, they just finished a master plan with, and actually one of the the Greens Committee guys or the, the Master Plan Committee guys was like, hey, you know, you pointed some things out we never even recognized because we don't, you know, we're a, they're the A players and, you know, they don't go play those forward tees or recognize that there's some really bad angles or there's, you know, their carries are too long or some of that stuff that I was able to filter out. So, you know, being able to just listen and soak it all in and then, you know, one thing too is ask, asking the right questions to, generate you know conversations you know putting putting sometimes my thoughts and opinions into questions so that I can make it become theirs you know when I can make the membership or the the committee make it their idea but by the way I put a position the question then that that can help right so ultimately at the end of the day when I'm working for a club it's their golf course right I'm just trying to help bring a professional expertise into the picture, protect them a lot of times from stepping on their feet or doing something that, that they're going to ultimately regret. And I tell them, like, you're going to know when I'm against something. You're, it's going to be pretty obvious, you know, but I'm going to, I want to make, I want to give you the options that you can make the decisions. You know, I want to give you the information that you're well informed about what we're doing. And my goal is that, they're the, especially the committee people that I'd be working for through a master plan or renovation, that they understand everything that's going on well enough that if they get questions, they don't have to always say, well, let me go ask Gary and get back to you. Oh, no, this is why he was doing that. This is why he was doing that. So um, and that, so that, that's just part of the communication. You know, just, you know, and, and I, and one thing I like about owning my own company is, you know, I, I take on a limited number of projects so that I can invest that time with every one of them. You know, it's um, I try to, you know, treat everyone like they're the only one. Uh, so we, we just go around that way. So, Gary, is there a risk to giving too many people an opportunity to voice their opinion and listening to everybody? At what point do you have to cut it off? How do you determine that balance where you're getting all the different opinions and viewpoints on it, yet get, getting the work done and moving forward still? Yeah, so I really put that emphasis on, like, let's, you know, keep it to the committee. Because once it gets – if you put it to the full membership, you're going to have 200 golf course architects tell you what to do. Yeah. You know, and and ultimately I explain, like, the, the committees volunteered their time. They're, I do want to make sure we have good representation on the committees. You know, I don't want just all the, the A players. I want a couple of the ladies in there, and I want, you know – People that are willing to invest their time to to represent their group, and they can go out and explain what's going on, and you know that they kind of filter what's coming back. So it's yeah, because every every project you do, there's people that are going to not like something, you know, right? But the majority of them are going to be accepting what you did, and there's one or two. They're just they just don't want change, right? They just don't want change, or that's just not what they wanted, or they had a certain agenda, you know, and I try to think bigger picture. I'm like, well, what's the best thing for the membership as a whole? What's the best thing 
you know, for the golfing community, what's, you know, not just one certain group of players or, or this or that, you know, what we've got to, I've got to think bigger picture. I've got to think, look at the, the whole of the golf course and, you know, what's that going to be? How's it going to circle back to, to marketing dollars and how can we market the renovation to you know, bring in more memberships or fill up that membership wait list, which is the case now, you know, or get excited to do further renovation work and, you know, how does all that balance? And the one club has a master plan. It's out in the locker rooms now and they're able to sign it and make comments. But, you know, that's really just so that they can have their say and the, the committee is going to filter through if there was a lot of resistance on something, well, maybe we come back, but they're not, they're not allowing, you know, 200 people to confront me um, in that situation. They're kind of filtering it through their own systems, and it's working pretty well. So We have a lot of uh, superintendents and assistant superintendents who listen to this podcast. At what point in the process do you start engaging with the superintendent, and how much do you listen to his or her voice as you move along? Uh, day one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, the, again, the superintendent sees the golf course even differently than the members do playing it, right? So I, I really get with the superintendent and be like, look, if we're going to do a master plan or we're going to do renovation, you know, we need to be on the same page going forward of, you know, you see things, there's things out there that you don't like. There's things that, that need to be addressed. And typically it's like irrigation wise or drainage wise or, Shade, you know, I just wrote a, a letter to a club last night about shade issues with some trees um, and, and impacting turf quality. And, you know, but the superintendent's like, Gary, you need to help me because, you know, they need another opinion. I'm like, over yours? And it's like, yeah, just come out here. Here's my list that I'm thinking, I want to take out. You know, I start pointing out to them the reasons why. And it's like, yeah, that's the same thing our superintendent told us, you know. But, you though the superintendent they just have they're on the ground right and and I need to know things like I need to know how the golf course is going to be maintained like are you walk mowing the greens or are you ride mowing if you're going to triplex that 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 drives how where I how close I can put bunkers to the green right if if you're if you're committed to and, and are going to walk mow I can tighten that bunker up a little more to that green edge. But if you if I need to be able to turn that triplex off of it and allow you, you know, multiple directions to mow, I need to understand that. And I need to understand that day one because I don't want to tell them something that then then they're not going to be able to maintain. Um, you know, it goes with teas and, and, and all that kind of stuff and just looking at all those things. I spend a lot of time, uh, especially like working on a master plan, riding around with superintendents and just, uh, talking about different options and what they're seeing and, and what I see. And, you know, I catch some things and point some things out and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, here, take the master plan, draw up things that, that you think we need to address. Cause a lot of times say we're doing a bunker renovation, right? And I'm running, we're running new drain lines out of the bunker. Well, we're going right by an area that doesn't drain real well. Maybe it drains, but doesn't drain really well. Well, we're already running pipe through there. Let us just fix that. Like it's, it doesn't cost a whole lot more money to fix that if we know we're going to do it coming through as part of the renovation. So, you know, let's identify those areas and let's, you know, our pipe's going to be going through there. Like the cost of the pipe's already there. So now it's just maybe a little bit of more sod, a little bit of draining work, 
And we've just addressed another problem, you know, as part of the bunker renovation. So, you know, I, and, you know, good look, I was just talking to the superintendent. I mean, for golf course architects, there are, they're, they're carrying on our vision, right? I mean, we can design and build it, but they're there every day maintaining it. They know what, um, the extent that they can maintain it. And, and we like to have those conversations and, and talk about mow lines and how, especially around greens or even up the fairway bunkers, how all that's going to work. And, you know, if you're going to have short cut areas around the greens and fall off areas and, you know, they need to know that and be able to, to yeah, got guys to do that. And um, so, yeah, those, those conversations are huge. And, you know, you know we're, we're always on the same page. So. Gary, what do you need in place from the club and its employees, including the superintendent, to ensure that uh, the project gets the most it can for the budget that it has? What needs to be in place for the club to get the most value for the work that's being done? Mm, that's a good one, Guy. <laughs> um, you know, I just think it's a commitment to the vision. You know, the, yeah. what, you, like most of our most of our work as an industry right now is is renovation work, right? Master planning, renovation. Um, you know, some of these master plans can get as a whole pretty far up there with dollar-wise. But there's a lot of courses that are just biting pieces off, and we have those conversations about here's the master plan, here's the direction we're going to take our golf course over the next five, ten years, you know, but it's all towards this master plan. It's all towards this common goal, Um and and see how that goes through, right? And and the bunker styles and you know, trying to balance, you know, what they can afford in years and what gets their most bang for their buck and you know, and then you gotta throw in there the irrigation system, which is is the is probably one of the tougher cells. Um, you know, when you're working with irrigation consultant on you know, those systems because you know, the cost of that for the golfers may not see that, like they obviously don't see the impact of the irrigation right away that they knew of a bunker renovation or a greens renovation, right? But the long-term turf quality, that will all get there. Um, and just, you know, the age of the system and the volatility of an older system and how much they're repairing those, you know, drives the irrigation. So I think it's just, it's, it's really the buy-in of like, okay, we've got a master plan. This is the direction we're going to go. We've invested the, the time and effort from the membership or the committees to put this master plan together with Gary, we all agree this is a good vision. Um, let's just maintain this this and go. And I think some of it's just getting – I think, Guy, what I see is once we get get it out of the box and get to do something, it just – you get instant buy-in. Like the, you know, to do an assessment or something like that helps, and I'm – you're trying to get in. We're going to probably do a couple bunkers at one club next spring ahead of a big renovation just to show them, you know, what a good quality bunker is. You know, needs drainage, needs, you know, probably a liner and, and better quality sand and, uh, you know, a little better style and character to it. And to just say, hey, here's where we're going to go. And just to get some buy-in, some visual buy-in, because they can't all read master plan and or sketching you know they just don't see it so um so yeah it's just the buy-in let's go what route are most clubs going 
to these days? Is it the master plan work doing chunks and phases at a time? Or are you seeing a lot of big ones where everything's done all at once? I see probably, it's probably a 50-50 mix. Yeah. And they just, they just start to see that, like, you know, when you start, and budgeting for our stuff anymore is impossible. So I used to be pretty good at the budgeting. Now it's not even a fair game. So, because it'll change by the time I print it from when I just finished it. So, you know, I try to guide and give them an idea of where they're going to be at. But until we can get something to start getting some realistic pricing and, um, so the, it's again, there's, there's those certain things that have to happen ahead of certain other things, right? And that's where our goal as golf course architects to a club is, is like to make sure that, that you understand the sequence to do things. So, uh, you know, you don't want to do an irrigation renovation and then the next year do a greens renovation, you know, and expand all your greens and now you just messed up your irrigation renovation. So, yeah, just to, to put the, make sure the sequence is right and what those things are. And, and you know, we're, we're looking at do you do nine holes at a time? You know, can we keep nine holes open and just close nine holes? And, you know, what's that happen? And does that help with contractor availability and, and all those types of things? So the, the gamut's out there and, um, what you do. So it's, you know, and what that scope is and what they can afford and, how it cash flows. This is some great tactical conversation, and I'm probably failing as a podcast host right now because I have someone from the Southwest on, and I haven't asked too many water-related questions yet. So we got to get into those, Gary, before we let you go. Just (laughs) how important is it in your role to understand the relationship between water, turf grass, and landscape and out-of-play areas, and how has that relationship among those three concepts changed in the last 30 years in your part of the world? Yeah, as I said earlier, if we don't have water, we don't have golf. Yeah. So the the and the public perception is that golf is high users of water. So here's the interesting fact, guy. In Arizona, you a question. I'm going to turn the tide a little. What do you think the percentage of groundwater use that golf courses use in Arizona of a total groundwater that's pumped? What do you think golf courses use? I'm usually the one that has to put people on the spot, Gary. This is a tough role for me to be in, but I will say it's somewhere around 2%. Well, yeah, it's, it's less than, it's like 1.9%. Okay. okay. But you ask, and you're someone in the business, you've been around, yeah. but you know, I can ask, I can sit in a membership and have them raise their hands, and they're thinking it's 15, 20, 30%. Agriculture is big in Arizona. Um, but golf doesn't use much water, much of the groundwater. I mean, we use water, but it's – I've gotten a little bit of trouble with the out here because I was uh, – I would tend to tweet out a picture of, of a, a retention area that's, you know, managed by an HOA or something that's full of water, and there's a bunch of little fountains out there. And I'm like, those aren't fountains in that retention area. Those are irrigation heads that are on, but there's two feet of water sitting in that retention area. But – it's, we're making the smart decision to water it, you know, and use that water. But whereas golf courses, you know, they're, if it rained, and I say rain, I live in the Southwest, but it, if it rained, you know, they're not out there watering. Like that pump station is shut off. You know, I was, I took a tour with a superintendent the other day 
And he's like, hey, man, I'm really dry. And he goes, as we're driving around, I may want to stop and throw some water. He goes, it was blowing 30 last night, so we shut the irrigation off um, because I just didn't want to be water in the desert. And so here's a superintendent that knows his golf course needed water, but was like, look, I'm just going to be wasting water if I water tonight because of the winds. And so he's like, look, we're just – he goes, we'll just kind of run through. I got a guy kind of just popping through the golf course helping manage water on the greens and stuff between play. And he goes, that's just what we got to do. And so that, but that's the level that, that we as an industry, you know, water. So I've done a lot. I, I'm working really closely with the Arizona Department of Water Resources on, on golf and water and understanding um, that and working with a lot of golf courses on uh, what's coming down for water allocations for those golf courses that pump groundwater and, and that's changing. Um, in Arizona, so we're trying to get all that um, in line. So it's been a, it's been kind of a wild ride. Arizona's been pretty good. So in like 1984, the Department of Water Resources changed the water allotment to new golf courses to only have really enough water for 90 acres of turf. So that's why pretty much most golf courses built after 84 are more the target style golf course. Most people probably don't know that. Um, you have your still, you have your old Parkland courses, a lot of the municipal courses, um, your, some of your old private courses like Arizona Country Club and Phoenix Touch Club, um, that are Parkland style, you know, wall to wall grass. Well, those were all built before 84. Well, that's all changing now about water allocation. So, um, we're having to, you know, worry about, you know, what that is. And that's where it comes back to the oversee. That's where we're looking at alternative turf grasses, uh, you know, we're starting to see some good signs from the tiff tough to use them, um, you know, being a little more drought tolerant. There's a couple of courses that have had it in for a year, year and a half now where they've actually been monitoring water use um, comparatively and, and, and deficit watering those, those golf holes compared to other golf holes to see how much less water they can put on those holes and still provide a good playing condition. So we're starting to see some of that information come out uh, to, to validate those types of things. So, uh, yeah, we have to we have to know what those water sources are. And for effluent waters there, you know, most new developments are have avail- availability to effluent water, um, and they're using that. You know, some of those older courses and uh, some of the city paying stuff, uh, you know, they just don't have – you know, effluent water they can get to them to even use. So, uh, you know, it's it's just understanding what's available, what we can do, and and just maximizing the footprint, designing efficiently um, to where those turf limits are efficient for irrigation. You know, when we get into having to overwater areas because they're too wide or too narrow, and I have to pay attention to where those are based on the the playability of the hole, like the front edge of a like on a more target style. Well, guy, if, if that front edge of the turf, that first part of turf between the tee and the fairway requires six or seven backup heads, and all I had to do was move that turf line 10 feet, well, why didn't I move that 10 feet to just maximize the space so I don't have all that overthrow? So those are kind of the things that, that I work closely with the irrigation consultants on looking at. And sometimes I'm like, look, where that is based on the playability of the golf hole, I need that width. I need that, 
you know, lake left side, you know, miss is going to be right. I need to push that turf line out there as far as I can to, to allow for the playability for the golfers. So it's, you know, it's the balance of design, strategy, water, water efficiencies, you know, and all of that in what we do. What's an example of a project you've worked on where you've really helped a course overcome a water challenge that you're really proud of helping them overcome? <laughs> all of them. That would be the politically correct answer. <laughs> all of them, yeah. Any more? Well, one of them I actually helped them realize that the what the, the Department of Water Resources ha- had on record for them for the number of golf holes and the amount of turf was different from what they really had. So mm-hmm. their allocation was less than what they should have been getting. So we were able to, oh. to figure that out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've got a unique challenge where the water for the golf course comes in to the community. Gravity feeds through three community lakes, which they actually pull water out to irrigate like a 20-acre common space. And then the water gets to the golf course, yet all the golf course is all calculated as golf course water. So now we have, we just have to go in there and, and meter the water that actually gets to the golf course because the golf course for all these years has been over their allotment. And we're like, well, that's because it's, we're losing water to evaporation, you know, those other three lakes and you know, water's getting pulled out for that small 20 acre piece that you know, isn't golf course and how HOAs are treated and common space are treated are totally different than how golf's treated, at least right now. Uh, so that's a unique challenge, right? So, uh, you know, we've, we've done some turf reductions. We've done some, uh, a lot of it's in the irrigation and irrigation efficiencies, you know, the aging systems. So obviously overseed's still big. Here's a good example, guy. On an older golf course where you just had, you know, Head spacings at 85 feet or whatever, you know, we go in to oversee a, a T complex, right? That's total T surface of say 4,500 square feet. Well, from, you know, November to, you know, March, there's not a lot of water that the Bermuda grass from, you know, a little bit. But if you oversee that T and are fertilizing and dropping new seed, well, that T needs a lot of water. So I did a study on one golf course. They were irrigating 63,000 square feet to irrigate like 4,500 square feet of tea because they had, you know, heads tied together. So the valve would turn on three heads for the one head to run to irrigate part of the tea. Well, I'm like, you guys are, you realize how much area you're irrigating? And this was a much older system. Like that's a lot of area that you're watering and that, that area becomes dormant. Um, you know, dormant Bermuda grass, and you put all that water on there, and then cards drive through it, it's just garbage. And so, you know, helps justify the irrigation and the water use because now they have actually what we call overseed heads, where like we do greens, we have heads that just irrigate the T-tops so that in the wintertime, when they only overseed the T-top, that's all they need to irrigate. It's still all turf around it, but in, they don't overseed all their teeth around so we're now able to, to oversee and only irrigate the T-tops. And also those heads help, you know, with fertilizers and stuff like that. He's not, you know, having to water that whole area to add that additional fertilizer on his teas or, or any of that. So 
just some of those those things. That's that's what we have. So we another here's another good story. So we found an old old community. Um, we found taps off the irrigation system, which was 40 years old, directly into the yards with no valves on them. So these yards were being irrigated like they, you know. The developer probably, those are probably some of his buddies. Like, I'll give you water to irrigate your yard. <laughs> like, we're like, we can't shut this off. And we trace the pipe and it's going into this yard. And you're, you knock on the door. He goes, yeah, my valve's right there along the back fence. Oh, really? Well, it's coming off the irrigation, golf course irrigation line and not anymore. What? You know, so, you know, but that was done 60 years ago. And there's, you know, we think those may have been model homes at the time was part of that, but. You know, and that was all the only water source, and you know, you just dig up the old bones. So, but it's it's water's massive. I mean, literally, it's. I would say, um, right now on my daily basis is seventy five percent of my design work is related to water, right now. Especially, and, I, and it's not just Arizona. It's, I'm dealing with a, a you know project up in Nevada. You know, dealing with water one and. And uh, West Texas is dealing with water, so it, it's not just Arizona. We've all got to be, you know, the best stewards we can of that resource because it's the picture is everywhere. The big picture is everywhere, right? So we got to be there. We got to communicate. I do a lot of membership meetings on water and um, just about what it means. And that leads into my last question: with uh, so many projects going on that involve water and and having so many conversations involving water, how do you think desert golf will change, if at all, in the next decade? And what will what will the role of the golf course architect be in impacting those changes? I think the big, the, the most significant change we're going to see is getting away from overseas. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you know we we now have Bermuda grasses that in a dormant state or less dormant state still provide really good turf conditions. You know, with with the mini verdes and the champion Bermuda hybrid Bermudas for the greens, the tip top, um, you know, on the, the the fairways, and you know, just you know, even even you add the the colorants, the dyes, and the paints that we can use. Those are so much better now than they were five, ten years ago. So you know, that's becoming more and more acceptable. So I think where where we get into the challenge where we as golf course architects is you know, key space is important if you don't oversee it again. You know, our, our prime season is, you know, you know, not so much December, but, you know, February, March, April, you're not getting a lot of Bermuda grass growth or zero. Um, so divot recovery is huge. You know, so, you know, key space, you know, landing areas where you get um, funneling of, of tee shots um, to low areas where your, your concentration of divots is high. If you're not overseeded, then those are going to get just beat up, right? If you're not, you know, being able to replace that grass. So can we do some things to to disperse that a little bit more? And then when you get up to the greens, the tough thing about the 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 greens is you, know, you don't see the cups; they don't heal as quickly um, in the winter time. You know, if they're not overseeded, so you know, and green speeds are harder to control. And, you know, again, I loved our conversations at our meeting about green speeds. You know, they're harder to control in the wintertime as that Bermuda grass kind of lays down and goes dormant. 
so you know, I, I'm one of the, you need to have a little bit bigger greens to allow for distribution of play throughout the green, um, to be able to move golfers around the greens and distribute that wear better. Uh, but it's, it's a huge dollar value to, oh, by the time of course overseeds, um, the cost to do all that and the loss of revenue for the time that it's played, you know, and then the transition in and out. So I think that's probably where we will get to. It's going to take a while though. It's a, I mean, like the, the people that come down here as visitors, they want, they want green grass. They want to come down here and play golf on green grass. And, you know, but it's, I think it's going to take us as an industry as a whole to say no. I mean, because as long as one guy does it, everybody's going to have to keep doing it. So, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take us almost as an industry to say, guys, we've got like, if we all don't overseed, everybody's on the same playing field. But as long as someone overseeds, then we're going to keep overseeding. So, but I, so that, you know, that transition of, you know, the two spaces to landing areas to green sizes and pinnable areas for a dormant Bermuda grass green. Those will be the, the, where we can keep moving, moving on that. So. Wow. This was a great conversation. Uh, so much for our listeners to think about Gary. I can't thank you enough for taking so much time to join me and congrats on everything you've achieved throughout the course of your career and looking forward to getting to chat again. Yeah, guys, great, uh, great seeing you in the elevator and chatting in uh, in uh, Rhode Island, and look forward to to more conversations. And yeah, it just you know, our our world's small, right? You and I travel around, and, and we're always seeing somebody in the golf business, and it's it's great to to be a part of. And, and I encourage people to to just keep going, and you know, just from the sales guys to the superintendents to greens committee guys. At the end of the day, it's, it's a, it's a good place to be.